Professor Larry Diamond is one of the world's most well-known, if not the leading scholar of democracy. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and he was the co-editor of the Journal of Democracy for 32 years. Professor Diamond, welcome to business. It's such an honor to speak to you. Nice to be with you. And you have just returned from Cape Town. Yes, um, I was uh, just in South Africa, one of the most uh, beautiful countries uh, in Africa, if not the world, and certainly with Cape Town being the most beautiful city in the world. So uh, that was a great joy. We love to hear that. But today we're talking about democracy. And can I start with what you wrote in your last article as co-editor for the Journal of Democracy? You said this is the darkest moment for freedom, and you've described democracy as imperiled. Can we start with why are we experiencing democratic backsliding, just to get a feel of why this is happening? Well, I think there are multiple reasons, Linda. One is that democracy expanded very dramatically. As you know, South Africa was uh, an important part of that story in the 1980s and particularly in the 1990s. And um, whenever something like that expands very rapidly, you know, it's like a stock price. You don't expect it to necessarily keep going up indefinitely. So if I can continue with the analogy, we were due for some kind of market correction. Uh, most countries that have stable democracy now didn't you know, just develop democracy and never have a problem again. They had crises. They even had failures. France is on its fourth republic. Uh, the Weimar Republic broke down in Germany. Many countries that have, India had emergency rule in the 1970s. Brazil had a horrible military coup in the 1960s. Democracy broke down in most of Latin America in the 1960s and early 70s. So we always face a challenge of uh, sustaining democracy and deepening uh, and sustaining both democratic institutions and democratic values. Then uh, secondly, we have to note the economic stresses and challenges that democracy has faced something that South Africa is keenly familiar with, with, for example, its unemployment rate, its extremely high youth unemployment rate, a fairly anemic level uh, of economic growth in recent years, and a number of new democracies or democracies in emerging market countries face challenges in this regard. The new Tunisian democracy that emerged after the Arab Spring, the one Arab country that actually stood up a genuine electoral democracy, could not produce economic growth and jobs, had problems with corruption, people got disillusioned. Then, as in many other places, they elected a populist leader, ironically a constitutional law professor, with a very superficial commitment to democracy, and he overthrew democracy. It's not just um, economic performance that causes people to become disappointed with democracy. It could be problems of physical security, 
crime and violence as happened in El Salvador. And then you get someone who is a self-described hip and, you know, internet savvy autocrat, Nayib Bukele, and he throws rule of law out the window to crack down on violent criminal gangs and has made a lot of progress in doing so, but at great cost to human rights. And I'd say the other performance challenge that has really uh, challenged and in many places undermined democracy and has been one contributing factor to the wave of uh, military coups in Africa has been recently, as it has been historically, corruption and the sense that the rulers only care about themselves and extracting wealth from their position of power and government, and people get resentful and think that if this is democracy, maybe it's not worth keeping, and they want the system cleansed. And this too, as you well know, has become in recent years, I think, a worrisome challenge for South Africa and for many other African, Asian, uh, and some Latin American countries. Then we have to look to the changed international context, and in particularly the rise in power of China and many parts of Africa, Russia as well, with their very predatory and extractive attitudes. And both countries with very powerful propaganda machines, China now in particular, peddling uh, authoritarian values and seeking to undermine faith in democracy. And as China and Russia and some other authoritarian countries, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and so on, have risen in power and global influence, the democratic West has declined relatively in power and influence. And I think a lot of regimes a lot of elected leaders and a lot of potential authoritarian enemies of democracy, for example, in the military or in politics with no commitment to democracy, many of them lost their fear of Western sanctions, Western reactions if they moved against democracy and figured, well, you know, the world is changing. We have China, we have Russia, we don't need Europe, we don't need the United States, or there's a global game going on now again in Africa. So, you know, there's another kind of geopolitical struggle for influence. We'll play that game. We'll play off powerful countries against one another, and we'll insulate ourselves from pressure and punishment in response to the overturning of democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. So I think all of these have converged to contribute to a sense of impunity, a sense of ambition, a sense of opportunity for authoritarian power grabbing. Well, all, everything you mentioned is really worrying for South Africa because we literally have every single element. We've got the crime, we've got the corruption, we've got the economic situation and love of Russia and China. And as you saw with Brex, 
their influence that they have on South Africa now. How does South Africa withstand all these powers and keep this young democracy that we were all so hopeful of alive? Well, I think there are economic imperatives, governance imperatives, and political imperatives. Uh, The economic imperative is obvious. South Africa has to generate um, economic growth and jobs for uh, a still, unfortunately, massive underclass. It's not enough that there has been born in the last 30 years or so a very substantial class of prosperous and indeed in many cases rich black South Africans. That's wonderful that the color barrier has been broken in that sense, and there are many successful black South African businessmen, professionals, businessmen and women, and so on and so forth. But you still have to worry about the broad bulk of the population whose lives are better in terms of housing, health care, life expectancy, and so on, but are still looking for economic opportunities, jobs, improved human dignity. And you're not going to get the domestic and foreign investment in South Africa to generate those jobs without better governance. And better governance has to include really a incredibly energized and purposeful crackdown on corruption and misuse of of power and opportunity in the public sector. I am, as many people are, uh, really struck by the problems in public service delivery, particularly with electricity. Who's going to invest in a country that has hours of load shedding every day? And this is a, a challenge that is solvable in South Africa because South Africa has advantages that not all countries have. Uh, Some of the obvious ones are abundant sources of renewable energy, particularly the sun, but in some places, wind power, hydropower, so on and so forth. Cape Town, for example, should be a prime candidate for the harnessing of wind power, right? As well as sun power. And this requires... I think, extraordinary policy, vision, and imagination to, first of all, for the environmental imperative of meeting the challenge of climate change, but also for the just economic imperatives, reducing South Africa's dependence on coal and really accelerating the transition uh, to renewable energy, which will be more reliable, more sustainable, Uh, ultimately more cost-effective, better distributed, will require uh, new investments in the power grid so uh, individual homes can generate their own electricity from the sun and so on and then sell it back to the grid if necessary or draw from the grid when when they need to. And there's a new generation of battery technology uh, coming up now. There's also a new generation of nuclear power technology that's much safer, more smaller scale, and so on. So South Africa has to mobilize the policy, vision, energy, and good governance to 
uh, tackle this problem, renew a commitment to expanding and making work essential public infrastructure, and then attracting the investment to really en energize the economy and also tap into the digital revolution, which I get the sense Kenya and Nigeria have been doing in a way maybe more than South Africa has been doing. So those are the economic imperatives, and uh, or at least some of them, and then the imperatives for job creation and social service delivery. The governance imperatives are going to be difficult. It looks like they have been difficult to tackle uh, for President Ramaphosa, who I think is, uh, in terms of governance, at least uh, a much more purposeful uh, and decent individual than his utterly corrupt and criminal predecessor. But, you know, unfortunately, when you don't have effective political competition and you have a one-party dominant political system and state, people get lazy because they lack uh, the discipline of uh, political accountability. Uh, they come to view power as an entitlement. Once you view power as an entitlement, you tend to... <laughs> feel entitled to the fruits of it. And so I think the ANC is facing an enormous challenge to clean up its own internal structures and, frankly, purge people who have not been effective in administering the public trust, either because they're incompetent or because they are corrupt or both. So this then leads to the political imperatives, which are nearly uh, upon us with the 2024 election approaching. And I must say that South Africa is sorely in need. It is, on the political front, its biggest need of a multiracial, serious, competing political party. And it was... I think a disappointment to many that the Democratic Alliance seems to have not been able to move forward to project a multiracial leadership, a multiracial image, a multiracial organization to the degree that really would enable it to challenge the ANC for political leadership. And um, if, as expected, and as might be predicted from the last local government elections, uh, the ANC loses its parliamentary majority uh, in the elections next year and has to go looking for a coalition partner. You know, the two obvious choices are going to be the DA or the economic freedom fighters. One is a choice for democracy, and the other is a choice for some kind of backward leap into populist and illiberal governance, if not autocracy. So the first option would be easier to achieve if the DA had, had done or could do, could accomplish the feat of substantially broadening its 
its social and, uh, frankly, racial base of support. So these, to an outsider anyway, and not an outsider who claims to have particular expertise on South Africa, look to be the challenges, their economic challenges, their governance challenges, their political and electoral challenges. And, you know, certainly the talent is there. It's a country with enormous talent across the board, but ultimately leadership has to make the strategic decisions that will harness it. Well, can we come to your country, the United States? There's the prospect that President Donald Trump might be re-elected, who has, can I, may I say, more autocratic notions? What does that mean for countries in Africa who often flirt with autocracy when the leader of the free world, which, which he would then again become, does not accept the result of an election? Well, it would be a catastrophe for a democracy in the United States, and I think democracy globally, if Donald Trump were re-elected. Any remaining constraints that he felt or uh, impulses or um, pressures to honor democratic norms simply evaporated in the wake of the November 2020 election, which he clearly lost, and his efforts to overturn the election, uh, relentless efforts. Uh, and to violate the law and the Constitution and to pressure or induce others to do so. You know, they narrowly failed, but it was a close call. And if he were to be reelected, he would return to power with everyone knowing that he had an authoritarian agenda. And with it, in a way, having been validated by the fact that he was elected, even if he didn't win, as I don't think he will, a majority of the popular vote, even if he doesn't win, as I don't think he will, a plurality of the popular vote. But as you know, that won't matter because we have an electoral college, and if he wins a majority of the vote in or a plurality of the vote in states that comprise a majority of the electoral college, he'll be the next president. I think that Biden's would still be likely to be reelected were not for the fact that there's an independent, supposedly nonpartisan and centrist political formation called No Labels that is intending to run uh, an independent ticket for president, what they call a bipartisan ticket. And if they go ahead with that, probably many of the people who would have voted for Biden very reluctantly uh, because they couldn't stomach Trump, will say, well, you know, now I can vote for this centrist bipartisan alternative because I don't really like either candidate. That would be fine if the United States had what uh, Australia has, the alternative vote, ranked choice voting. So you rank your choices one, two, three, four, whatever, and if nobody gets a majority of the vote, then uh, the candidate with the lowest number of votes is eliminated and their votes are redistributed to their second preferences in what's called an instant runoff. 
And under that arrangement, a lot of the votes, uh, well, I'm sure a majority of the votes cast for the third party candidate would then be redistributed to Biden and he would win. But we don't have that system. So a third party candidate is a spoiler candidate. And in this case, uh, there's a very serious risk that it would spoil the re-election of Biden. And you could say, well, you know, that happens in life, you know, politics moves on. But if it's Donald Trump who's elected as a result of that, democratic politics may not move on. In any case, irrespective of what happens in the United States, he obviously has nothing but contempt for African countries, which is essentially described, I'm not sure I can use the word on your radio, as shithole countries. Exactly. Reflection of his attitude. And, um, you know, he's shown that um, he really, his admiration is mainly for authoritarian leaders and regimes, and he really has contempt for his, his democratic peers. So it's a danger. It's a very, very serious danger. The other thing we worried about, you said that Russian subversion cost Hillary Clinton the 2016 election. Are you worried about Russian interference with your election and also with the South African 2024 elections on um, social platforms? Yes, I'm very worried about Russian intervention in the U.S. election in 2024 because for Putin, it's become an existential issue, right? His primary hope of prevailing with at least some degree of territorial acquisition in Ukraine is for the U.S. to give up and end its support for Ukraine. For that to happen, he needs Trump to win in the U.S. in 2024. And so he has a much more powerful incentive now than he did in 2016 to try and help Trump win. Whether he'll still have the means to do that, given our greater awareness now of his um, of Russia's means of disinformation and internet penetration, that's a more open question. But you can be sure that Vladimir Putin's Russia is going to try to do everything it can to swing the election to Trump. In South Africa, I'm not so sure. I mean, you know, President Ramaphosa just hosted a BRICS meeting that Putin couldn't travel to for obvious reasons, but that Russia participated in. I don't I don't think Russia has the same incentive to launch a coordinated, intense, massively resourced campaign to try to tip the election in a certain direction in South Africa that it has for the U.S. election. The last thing I want to ask you, sometimes South African leaders, like the EFF, you mentioned them and that they, in the worst case scenario, becomes a partner of the ANC should the ANC not get a majority. People like the EFF, look at the Chinese example, an authoritarian country that has managed to build a mighty economy and uplifted a lot of people out of poverty. Um, why is the Chinese example not a good example for Africa? Well, 
first of all, China is a deeply authoritarian regime. So, you know, it's only a good example if you want to completely surrender your freedom to a neo-totalitarian surveillance state. And I think there are many instances among emerging market countries, both in Africa with countries like Ghana and uh, some Latin American countries, India to some extent, that show you don't have to be an authoritarian state to generate vigorous economic growth. What you need is to create uh, decent governance and an enabling environment for investment. Uh, domestic and foreign, and innovation. Secondly, China was able for a long period of time to attract massive foreign investment because its market was so large and everybody felt they had to be there. But we're now seeing the contradiction, a popular Marxist word, of the Chinese model in the current phase as reality catches up. In multiple respects, first of all, you have a completely impulsive, arrogant, neo-totalitarian and incompetent leader in Xi Jinping, who cannot really be checked, uh, who's amassed the most amount of power that any Chinese leader has had since Mao Zedong, and is starting to drag China down economically in the way Mao did through his extremely bad choices, like the zero COVID lockdown and the war on private entrepreneurs. So China has essentially uh, lost its economic growth and the property sector is in crisis. You know, a number of banks and property companies are essentially going bankrupt. And the China model is no longer anything that, people should want to emulate, and it's a direct result of the lack of accountability, checks and balances, rule of law, and so on. So it's a model that was only able to work in a country that had the market power of China and the kind of pent-up energy among the private, the potential private entrepreneurs that China had But in the end, it it shows uh, the truism that without a rule of law, political accountability and good governance and the ability to discipline or replace a uh, a bad or underperforming leader, you know, terrible things happen. And so if South Africa were to adopt the, quote, China model, you would not get the Chinese rate of economic growth for, say, the first 35 years after Deng Xiaoping came to power in the late 1970s. What you would get is the Zimbabwean rate of economic growth. And that, we know, is negative and disastrous. Yeah. And we've just had that election there as well, another election that wasn't free and fair. Yeah, that was stolen by the ruling party. Yes, and our president is there at the moment congratulating them, which is worrying. Larry Diamond, that is was so interesting. Thank you so much for coming to a little South African station and speaking to us. And we hope we see you back with your insights in our country. Okay, thank you very much. And good luck with the American election. Thank you very much for that too.